Good to be here with you this morning. Scripture says he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. God has placed a special calling on our lives. We are free. We're followers of the Lord Jesus. Scripture says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have a lot to be thankful for this morning, don't we? We have a lot to worship the Lord for. And we shall be eternally thankful for the fact that he has has set us free. I'm glad to uh, be able to worship with you this morning and to declare God's word to you this morning. I want to invite you, if you would, be making your way to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, glad to uh, glad to have my son along with me today. That's a special treat, and uh, thankful for his uh, for his company today. And um, I tell you, we uh, Lord really blessed us this morning. I, uh, I I think I had my windshield wipers on for about ten minutes of the drive from Benton, Arkansas, this morning. So uh, uh, I, I hear it really came through. In a, uh, in a tremendous way this morning, but the Lord spared us, and not only did we not have rain, but he blocked out the sun with the clouds, so I wasn't even having to look at it the whole ride over. So we had a, uh, we had a great trip over uh, this morning, and uh, just thank you for allowing me, to, uh, allowing me to share with you. Again, I want to say a word of thanks to you just for your partnership in the cooperative program, all God is doing uh, in and around us and, and through you and through your partnership. Uh, very thankful for that, just to give you a little bit of an idea about what goes on in the state of Arkansas, uh, something that you may not be aware of. This past weekend, um, I was up in kind of north-central Arkansas, uh, up in the, uh, the Mountain View area, a little bit to, to the east of Mountain View, up in the Melbourne, those, those areas. matter of fact, I preached at a church in Melbourne uh, this past week. And uh, we got together, several of us from the Arkansas Baptist State Convention came up there and met with pastors up in in that part of the state and then on Sunday night we met at a church in that local association of churches and uh, we met for the purpose of having a prayer meeting okay so we said uh, we would like for you all to come and and we want to just spend some time praying together uh, to the Lord and so we met in this church that would hold about 275 people, and there were about 250 of us crammed into, uh, into that church on Sunday evening, and uh, they, they think it's the most people that have ever been in that church building, and uh, they gathered, and we gathered for the purpose of praying. And I tell you what, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may have heard me say this before, but we need to find ourselves acknowledging that if God doesn't do it, it is not going to get done. And, and I'm thankful for the, uh, for the report uh, on behalf of the search committee this morning and the fact that um, uh, we need to follow the Lord in humility. We know that the Bible teaches God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so we need to follow him in humility and sincerity, and he will provide, he will direct, and I am very thankful for that. Um, I don't know what your hobby is, uh, but uh, if I were to take a poll, I'm sure there would be several different hobbies. I like to fish, like to hunt, uh, tried to till my garden yesterday. Those are some things uh, my wife and I enjoy uh, gardening together. Another hobby that my wife has is she, uh, she enjoys eating out. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, now don't, 
don't go back and tell her that, Nathan, because uh, this needs a little context, all right? She, uh, she, the reason she enjoys uh, eating out is she, she does a lot of cooking at home, and so th- she, she enjoys being able to, to go and have somebody else cook for her and clean the mess and all those kinds of things. But to be perfectly honest with you, I could take it or leave it, all right? So I just, uh, I fall into the camp of I can go somewhere nice and get a good meal and pay a lot of money for it, or I can be just as full eating a bologna sandwich or a bean burrito from Taco Bell. Okay, so I don't know how many of you find yourselves there, but that's just how I've always kind of been wired. Except, how many of you are members of Sam's Club? Anybody in here a member at Sam's Club? Okay, there are several hands. All right, if you've never had the hot dog combo at Sam's Club, that is, now that is eating out that I really enjoy. All right, that, that's a high-quality meal for like $1.50. And, uh, and so it's, it's wonderful. Matter of fact, I have attempted to tell, I've told my wife before when she says, let's go out, I, absolutely let's go out. How about Sam's Club? I'll get the hot dog combo, and you can get one of those rotisserie chickens, and we'll just sit down in the tables there in the front and eat that. I've never gotten her to do, do that with me. She will not, she will not go in on, uh, on that. But Part of the reason that I don't really care to eat out is because my wife is such a fantastic cook. I consider her to be an excellent cook. I can remember, it's been two or three years ago now, we're sitting down to a meal where um, she's made this meal, and it's, it's, she just always cooks really good food. You can tell her I'm saying this, Nathan. Okay, so that's, that's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll review this on the way back home. But, uh, but we were sitting there eating this meal, and, uh, and, and she's made these homemade biscuits, and they're great biscuits. And, uh, and my, my youngest son was sitting by her, and he bites into this biscuit, and he just goes, mmm. And he, he does this number. My, my wife is sitting right here beside him. He looks at me and he says, Dad, you got yourself a good one right here. <laughs> so, that, amen. That is exactly true. The Lord has blessed. She is a, she is a fantastic cook. And uh, she has created this expectation that when she cooks a meal, it is going to be good. Okay, so I, uh, we had homemade cinnamon rolls this week. And they were tremendous, just like they always are. That's just the kind of, that's a, a, just a day in my, in my life that we live. And so she's just created this expectation. So therefore, I don't want to go out and eat because the food is probably not going to be as good. We find on the pages of Scripture, I've, I've referenced it, I think, in, in a couple of Sundays that I've been here at the end of Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the gospel, and you're supposed to be in Acts 1, so just hang on with me, but at the end of the gospel of, of Matthew, that 28th chapter, Jesus concludes that passage of scripture and ultimately the book with what we know to be the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And ultimately, that is the purpose of the church. That is what God has given as the mission to the church body, to the church family. When Baptist Church has the mission of making disciples. Now, with that in mind, I want us to take up here in Acts chapter 1, 
And I want us to be able to look at a passage of Scripture that, again, is very similar or familiar to you. And, and we're going to be flipping through some pages in Acts, so you all just bear with me this morning. But we begin in Acts chapter 1, because in Acts chapter 1, the very first passage of Scripture, following the introduction, records the ascension of Jesus. His ministry is concluding. He is about to disappear from view of the disciples. And before he does that, we find in verse 8, it says, these are the words that Jesus gives to, to the disciples. All right, and again, just some context before I read this. The disciples are certain that now is when Jesus, as the promised Messiah, is going to set himself up as the king, and he is going to crush the Romans. We find that in their question in verse 6. Lord, at this time... Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Surely now you're going to do what we expect you to do. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times. Don't worry about all those things. Here's what you need to focus on. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus says, don't focus on those things everybody else focuses on. Don't worry about when I'm going to establish my kingdom, when I'm going to defeat the Romans. Here's the reality. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. I've promised him already. He did that earlier in his ministry. He's going to come upon you, and when he does, he is going to fill you with power. And when the Holy Spirit of God fills you with power, you will be my witnesses. I love that verse of Scripture. I mean, it's almost like that's a promise that God gives. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to have the power to be my witnesses. And it's going to start in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, this passage of Scripture says. Now you flip the page, you come to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit of God comes upon these early believers. And we know this to be the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and, and those believers that were gathered together and praying as this passage of Scripture begins. When the Holy Spirit comes on them, it says that they rushed out into the street and they were able to, to speak in languages they'd never learned before. Languages that, that the other people who had traveled from around the Roman Empire, these other Jewish people, to come celebrate the, the Pentecost celebration, they could hear their own tongue. They could hear their own language spoken by these people that were largely uneducated. And it was miraculous. And this huge crowd gathers. They want to know what is going on. And ultimately, the apostle Peter, he begins to proclaim the message of God in his own power. No, in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like had been promised in verse 8 of chapter 1, he begins to preach, and then it, look, at, look at verse 40, verse 40 and 41. <clears throat> this is, this is the concluding, these are the concluding statements about his sermon. With many other words, so we don't have the whole sermon. With many other words, he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The first day the Holy Spirit has been unleashed through the believers. A message has been preached, and 3,000 people place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's amazing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we had some sort of an evangelistic event 
revival, vacation Bible school, something that would be somewhat familiar to us. And 3,000 people gave their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Goodness gracious, we would be overwhelmed by that. I mean, just imagine, you, you know how we would be thinking as Southern Baptists, I would be thinking, okay, all right, what kind of program can we put into place here to get these people discipled? Because that's our responsibility. We've got to disciple people. And, and they've never seen this before, but 3,000 people give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're serious about following the Lord. And then we're able to see in verse, verses 42 and following, this is a great passage. We don't have time to comment really on it this morning, but let me just read it. They, that is these 3,000 people, they devoted themselves. I mean, they're serious about following Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles and all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And look at that last sentence there. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day, people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and probably we look at this passage of Scripture and go, my land, they were selling their stuff. They were selling their vehicles and they were selling their, their possessions and, and all these things. And they were, they were giving their money away to all these other people that were part of the church. And, and that is a, probably to an extent a foreign concept to us. But I'm telling you, if, if we knew that giving our stuff away and, and surrendering our possessions to the Lord would result in people being saved every day, I think that would change our perspective. Would I be willing to give up my, my bow or my crossbow or my rifle if I knew that people were going to be saved as a result of that? Well, I'd like to think I would. Well, that's a kind of a convicting thought, is it not? We find here in this passage of Scripture that that daily people were added to their number. Flip over a couple more pages here with me to, to chapter 4. What we, before we look at this passage in chapter 4, what happens in chapter 3 is in chapter 3 we find another great story that is introduced in the pages of Acts. Again, the Holy Spirit of God is moving in great power. And, and one day, Peter and John, they're, just, they're headed up to the temple. They're going up there to worship the Lord and to declare Him. And as they're, as they're going into the temple, they encounter this lame man. And, and he, he asks them for money. And you probably remember this story where this man asked them for money. And, and Peter looks at this man and he says, We don't have any money, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And this man stands up to his feet. He has been sitting there begging for years and years and years. And all people could ever do is give this man money. But today is the day that the Holy Spirit of God is unleashed on this man and something happens to him that's going to change him forever because through the name of Jesus, he was healed, jumps up to his feet, runs around the temple complex here. All right, I mean, we're talking, this is a huge complex, acres and acres and acres, and he's, I just envision him making laps. He's never been able to do this before. And all of a sudden, people start looking and going, hey, wait a second, I gave that guy a $5 bill about an hour ago. What on earth? I thought he was a beggar. 
And this crowd gathers, okay? They're, they can't believe what's going on here. This man's been sitting here for years and years. He has been healed. This crowd forms. And all of a sudden, as a result of this great crowd gathering to see what's going on, Peter acknowledges the situation. He, he begins to preach the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how this man was healed. And all these people get to hear the message of Jesus. And let's look here at, at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at, look at verse 4. Because it references a message. This is the message that Peter preached as a result of this man being healed. But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now we're sitting at 5,000. Now we look over in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, unless you're worried, I realize there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We're not going to do this on all of them. Okay, all right. I know you're thinking, okay, he's averaging about a, a chapter every three minutes. We're in trouble. All right, y'all just, just bear with me here. We come to Acts chapter 5, and in Acts chapter 5, of course, we find the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the judgment of God that was displayed in that circumstance. But as the chapter continues on, the apostles are arrested they're arrested by the religious leaders, and the religious leaders say to them, listen, we told you in chapter 4 you could never preach in the name of Jesus again, and yet here you are once again, you're still doing it, you're causing a great upheaval in our city, we're telling you, you cannot proclaim the message of Jesus, and once again, in great boldness, in great power, because the Holy Spirit of God was present in their lives, Peter and the apostles say, listen, we can't help but do it, you do whatever you want to, we have to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, at the conclusion of this chapter, the apostles are beaten. They are flogged for their faith. The first time they have suffered physically for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, with that in mind, look here in verse 41. It says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, that is the name of Jesus, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Even having been beaten, what did they do? They kept preaching the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had wounds. They had scars. It didn't matter to them. They knew what they had seen with their eyes. They were going to proclaim the Lord Jesus. It's interesting, in chapter 6, we find a problem develops. Here's the problem. There, the widows, had, there were a lot, of, a lot of believing widows, Christian widows that were Jewish living in Jerusalem, and they, they, needed, their, they needed their needs to be provided for. They had needs, they needed those met. And so, so they were distributing the food that was provided. People were giving, and it, this was being distributed, but the, as the story unfolds, it turns out that the, the widows, the Christian widows who were Jews that didn't live locally, all right, they weren't from the county, if you will, they were being neglected and, and favoritism was giving to those widows who were locals, all right? And so this caused a great uh, problem in the local church and so as a result of this the apostles say listen we need to raise up some men who will oversee this ministry and this is where the first deacons come they 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 call the first deacons they begin to address this ministry look at the result of what happens i love this about this passage of scripture and so at verse 7 look at this 
So the word of God spread. Do you understand that? In response to how this problem was addressed through the raising up of these first deacons, the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. People are still getting saved. Even as a result of addressing this internal need concerning which widows are getting the food. The power of God is on display in such a way that God could even use that to see people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now it gets serious. Because one of those seven, one of those seven men, those seven deacons, his name was Stephen. Ultimately, Stephen, he gets into trouble because of proclaiming the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 7, we're able to acknowledge that Stephen, having proclaimed God's message with such boldness, he is stoned to death, the first person ever to die for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that is recorded in the last part of chapter chapter 7. But let's look at verse 8. It says in first, verse 1 of, of, verse, of chapter 8, excuse me, Verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged men and women off and put them in prison. But look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered, what did they do as they ran for their lives? They preached the word everywhere they went. Wow. Now let's imagine this happens to us in our circumstances and persecution becomes so severe, one of us dies for our faith. We might take off. We might, we might run somewhere, but I'm afraid, you know what I'd be tempted to do? I'd be afraid to run and hide. These people didn't run and hide. They ran, but God used this to scatter the message of the Lord Jesus Christ beyond the city of Jerusalem. And and we're able to see here, as this continues on, we're going to look at a couple more spots. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, because because verse 19 of chapter 11 connects directly to verse 4 of chapter 8. Look here, chapter 19, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 19. Now those, those who had been scattered by persecution in connection to Stephen... They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. But some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, as we look at these passages of Scripture... It's interesting to note that if we were to take the time in Acts chapter 13, what, what church, what city does the, does the missionary movement launch out of? It's Antioch. Right here, this passage of Scripture that is mentioned right here, these people were proclaiming the message and people were turning to the Lord in great numbers. You get the impression the early church was on fire for Jesus, don't you? I get the impression their priorities were a little bit different than my priorities. 
I just think that, that every time a person got around these people, they told those lost people, whoever they were, they told them about the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that there was this man who lived in Judea, and he died for the sins of the world, and he rose from the dead, and we know it for a fact, Jesus is alive. You cannot read about the early church without reading about all these people getting saved. And I want to encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read Acts, I want to encourage you to take the time and read it sometime and, and allow God to, to remind us of how he moved in such great power. People were getting saved all the time. They had a culture of evangelism. They expected people to be saved. Now, I know it's basketball time. Y'all may have watched the basketball games that took place last night and, and then the national championships coming up uh, on Monday evening. But let's, uh, let's look toward, uh, especially in the state of, of Arkansas, Razorback Athletics. Let's look, well, baseball season, we can be positive about that. But let's look toward the fall, okay? Let's get them next year. I've been telling my kids that for a while now. <clears throat> when, when football season starts, what do you think the fans of the Clemson Tigers and the Alabama Clemson Tide expect? They expect the championship. They, they're not interested, Alabama is not interested in winning the SEC West. They're not interested in winning 10 games. They're not interested in hopefully making it to the SEC championship game, maybe winning that game. The Alabama fans and the Clemson, uh, the Clemson fans, they are going to be disappointed if they do not hoist that trophy high as national champions. They've just grown to expect it. What do, uh, what do we Hog fans expect? Oh. <laughs> we hope to win, okay? What a difference. They expect it. We hope it's going to happen. The early church expected people to get saved. They expected it to happen. What is our perspective on people getting saved today? What does the 21st century church expect? We expect good worship. worship it's good. Boy, we had a good time of worship. Matter of fact, I almost started the message by saying I'm going to be clearing my throat a lot, and that's a good indicator that I sang too much. <laughs> All right, so it's good. Worshiping the Lord is good and right. We, we expect good facilities. We, we expect good sermons. We expect good fellowship. And in 2018, 25% of the churches in the Arkansas Baptist State Convention did not baptize a single person. One-fourth of the Southern Baptist churches in Arkansas did not baptize a soul all last year. What has changed since the first century? I mean, I, I grant you, uh, we don't see the miraculous today like we did on the pages of, of the book of Acts. And, and there's debate related to why that is, but, 
But I think in some way God did that to authenticate the message of the early apostles. Is it harder, is it harder for us in, our, in Arkansas to be Christians than it was for first century Christians? No. No, no, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to be Christians in other places in the world today, but it's not harder here than it was in the first century. What needs to change? Well, I think on, on some level we go back to that chapter 1 and verse 8 where it says the Holy Spirit of God's going to come on you. You're going to have power to, to be my witnesses. We need the Lord to, we need to turn to the Lord and expect Him to empower us to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we need to enjoy a culture of evangelism. I think what we need is, as, as the people of God, to be able to enjoy expecting to see people saved. There's a culture of singing, there's a culture of preaching, there's a culture of programs, and those are all good. I'm not here to say we need to do away with those. I think those are good and fitting. But we need a culture, we need an environment where we expect to see people saved. And I think today, as far as 21st century Christianity is concerned, at least in the United States of America, we just don't find that. As a matter of fact, there was some research done several years ago where Southern Baptists were asked about sharing their faith. And the North American Mission Board, they did this research, and here was what was concluded. 92%, more than 9 out of 10 Southern Baptists, would live and die without ever presenting the gospel to another human being. 92%. George Barna, the Barna Research Group, did some research here not too terribly long ago, and they polled millennial Christians, young adult Christians. And it, the question concerned whether or not they were sharing their faith and their perspective on sharing their faith with lost people. And look, this is staggering to me. Half. Half of those millennials who profess to be born-again Christians stated that sharing their faith with someone else in an effort to win them over is morally wrong. Half of the young adults in the United States of America think it is immoral to try to tell somebody else about Jesus. And how far have we gotten from Acts chapter 1, verse 8? The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. He is going to empower you. He is going to make you witnesses. <clears throat> I'm not sure we really even believe in hell anymore. Jesus makes it clear people who die without a relationship with Him are going to go to hell, and they're going to be there forever and ever and ever. People need to hear about Jesus regardless of what our culture thinks. Let us affirm the words of Peter where he says, I don't care what you think, I am going to tell people about Jesus. How did we get here? We got here because evangelism is not a major part of most churches. When do we intentionally pray for lost people? When do we come together and pray for lost people by name with the expectation God's going to save them? <clears throat> What begs the question, do we know lost people? What are we doing to try, to try to get to know lost people? When do we share stories of personal evangelism? When do we have opportunity to say, hey, I wanted to share with you guys about something that happened to me this past week related to sharing my faith? 
I'll tell you, it's, in, it's interesting for us to think about this because, and I don't know, uh, here, I'm, as far as when Baptist Church is concerned, y'all are a great church family, and I don't know the specifics of, of whether or not this relates to you, but generally speaking, in the majority of Sunday school classes that I have ever been in, if the teacher were to say, hey, somebody tell us about how you've attempted to share your faith recently, you know what you'd hear, if anything? You'd hear phones buzzing or crickets chirping. It'd be pretty silent. I want to encourage you to start thinking in terms of how are we creating this environment where talking about telling other people about Jesus isn't weird. We need to expect people to be saved. We need to start praying for lost people as though God is going to save them. We need to ask God to, to embolden us and to, to empower us. And I think it's appropriate to ask each other to pray for us to be emboldened to share our faith with people that desperately need Him. I want to encourage you in your Sunday school class, sometime, try it, sometime just throw it out there. Hey, has anybody been telling anybody about Jesus here lately. And if they, somebody may have a story, that'd be great. Celebrate that. If they don't, then back up a notch and go, okay, who do you, who do you want us to pray for that, that you want to see saved? All right, do, you, do we know lost people that need to be saved? Matter of fact, just for a second here, with that in mind, I want us to stop and I want you to think about that. Do you know a lost person? Do you know a person that if they died today will be separated from God forever? And I want, I want you to do something right now. Uh, if, if you do, then, uh, then I want to, uh, just for a second, let's bow our head and let's close our eyes. We're, this is not our invitation yet, just about there, but, but not yet. I want to invite you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed I want you to say their first name, just their first name. I want you to say their first name out loud. And I, all right, yep, go ahead. Mine's Glenn. Can you think of somebody that needs to be saved? Several are sharing. As names have been shared and are continuing to be shared this morning, you can look up here. Do you think God can save those people? Do you think He wants to save them? Boy, I, I, I think so too. Do we expect God to save them? Are we willing to be used of God to see those people saved? I'll tell you what, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if every time we came to church, we knew we were going to hear somebody else's story about how they would tried to share their faith that week? Wouldn't it be great if every time we got together, we prayed and asked God to save those people, and we prayed like it mattered because we knew He was going to do it? 
Wouldn't it be great if we were able to share stories together, not only of us praying for people, but of us sharing our faith with people, and then as God moves, being able to celebrate those people who are saved and have given their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great if every time we came to church, we expected to hear about somebody else's life being changed? Well, it is my prayer that God creates in us a great burden leads us to, to expect Him to save and change people. Easter's coming. You're going to say something about this here in a second, aren't you? All right. Okay. I think you had the card, so no pressure. I just think you're going to do that. Okay. Easter's two weeks away, all right? You know how many, how many Saturdays you have between now and then? That, that's, well, I guess you got two, but, but there's one weekend between now and Easter. Now, you're going to come to Easter, and you're probably going to, it's my working assumption, you're going to hear a message about the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you not to just come expecting there to be a big crowd. I want to encourage you to help contribute to that big crowd on Easter Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, there, there are some years that I preach on Easter Sunday, there are some years I don't. This year I've marked off, um, and, and what, here's what we're going to do this year. We are go- there are several in our community, our neighborhood, that don't go to church at all. And so what we're going to be doing this next weekend, our family, we are going to, we're going to encounter those folks. We are going to invite them. We have a little brochure like this, and we're going to ask them to come to church with us on Easter Sunday. The gospel is going to be very clearly presented. Matter of fact, and, and I've okayed this with my wife, okay, after Easter Sunday service, we are going to fix a meal at our house with the understanding that any of those folks that will come to Easter Sunday church as a result of us inviting them, we are going to feed them a meal of some kind, whatever that may be, we're going to feed them. And I, it, wouldn't it be great if there were 50 people and I was down to eating, you know, cooking hot dogs? I, that would be wonderful. But here's, here's where I want you to use Easter, okay? God can save people on Easter, okay? He can, and we need to pray to that end, but... but If we have people come with us, and that's what I'm praying for, what that allows you to do, not only could they be saved that day, but walking away, you could have a conversation with them about, hey, you heard what was said, what that preacher said on Sunday. What do you think about that? And begin having conversations, and ultimately God can use you in their life to see them reached with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't view Easter as just a time for there to be a big crowd, one of the best days of the, of the year for us on church. Use it as a time to reach lost people. Let us expect God to transform people's lives.